Larry Brown, the only head coach to win an NCAA title and an NBA championship, the only coach to lead eight different NBA teams to the postseason. What makes a great coach, in your opinion? Great players. Oh man, I figured that one out a long time ago. And the only U.S. male to play and coach in the Olympics. Brown is known for turning losing teams around, but also for leaving them too soon. Later in the episode, he discusses his stormy relationship with former player Allen Iverson. I wanted to fight the first couple of times, but then the players would tell me that's just Allen. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. What makes a great player? Makes players around him better. Um, Leads by example. but the, the biggest thing, I think, is, is somebody that takes responsibility for when you win and when you lose. I'm miffed by this new th- phenomenon in the NBA, and now even in college a little bit, that the great players want to team up so they have a chance to win a championship. Um, Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, those guys wouldn't want to team up with great players. They would ex- accept the responsibility if they're so talented and so great. I think I can do it alone with any cast of characters that you give me. Um, and I don't think it's a good idea. That's why I think there's such an imbalance in the, in the pros now. When you look at so few great teams and so many you know, mediocre teams. Um, but I, I don't understand um, that phenomenon now that you need to go with other great players. Um, and I, I, th- I think that's a bad message going out there. What makes a great coach, in your opinion? Great players. Oh, oh man, I figured that one out a long time ago. Oh, please. Ago. No, I, I, I really believe... Well, I, every team you've taken over, with the exception of Detroit, had the losing record when... You came into it, so you have to give yourself a little credit. Well, I, I think um, a lot of the teams that had losing records had good players. Uh, it was just get, getting those guys to buy in and, and really, you know, become a team, do the little things that give you a chance to win. I, I firmly believe that if you defend and you rebound and you share the ball and you play hard, um, you can be successful on any level. I don't know if you can win the championship. Um, I think to win the championship in the NBA, you really have to have some great players. Why will you occasionally stop the game film you're watching to, or pause it to inspect the body language of your players that are sitting on the bench? Well, I do that constantly because um, I know every kid wants to play. Um, And if you're sitting on the bench, I know it's a natural feeling that you're hoping that maybe somebody will call your name so you can get in. And subconsciously, maybe it's like maybe one of the starters is not playing as well as he's capable of playing and coach will give me an opportunity. But, But at the end of the day, I was taught that whatever happened during a game, all 12 players had to be involved. They all had to support one another. 
and the way you acted on the bench to me sent a message to what your program's about. Um, if you watch Coach Smith at Carolina, a kid would come out of a game, the whole bench would stand up and just as a courtesy, it's just like when your mom walks into a room, you stand up. Uh, but I think if you can't be a really good team unless everybody's connected and everybody's supportive of one another and body language is a big part of that. Some have said that nobody can do this quicker than you in terms of uh, turning a, a group of players into a family. You've done this enough now. What, what's involved with actually making that happen? Well, I think they get so angry at me that they'd learn to love each other yeah. and bond. There you go. Um, I, uh, and I don't do that by design, but I, I am demanding. I do get on kids. I hope they understand the difference between coaching and criticism. I, I, that's really a key. And they had to make sacrifices. And I'd get on some of them. And uh, every once in a while, Mark Jackson and Eric Snow or George Lynch, Larry Hughes, they'd come up to me and say, Coach, you got to throw me a bone once in a while. And, it, you know, I, I didn't do it consciously, but I would get on those guys because I felt they would take it the best. And then maybe some other players that were a little sensitive to coaching they might hear me, you know, getting on in Eric Snow and say, wait, maybe he's talking to me. To what extent do you think um, you're able to get your players to maximize their ability? <laughs> I, you know, I think a coach's challenge is to get kids to play as, as well as they're capable of playing. Um, and I think you also have to be a little bit realistic and get them to understand, do what they do best. But um, I, I don't think any coach uh, goes to a workout where he's not hopeful that the kids will improve and buy into what you want them to do. Uh, unfortunately, with a lot of young kids, they have a preconceived idea how they should play. The most important thing is to get them to recognize, you know, it is a team game and the only way you're going to be successful is you do things to help your teammates. I, I was surprised in uh, preparing for the, the interview when uh, you were let go by the Charlotte Bobcats for really the first time in your career it seemed like the, the job offers did not roll in like they once did. Um, why do you think that was? Well, um, Michael put out a message that it was a uh, I wasn't fired that it was a, a mutual decision, which was totally untrue. He fired me, fired me on Christmas. Um, we had just made the playoffs the year before. Um, they let Tyson Chandler go. They let Raymond Felton go. They which were, were ready, your guys. Yeah, they were ready to let Boris Diaw and Gerald Wallace go, which they did a short time after that. We started off poorly, and you know, you are what your record is. And, um, he wasn't happy with the way we started this season. And I think when somebody that you, you admire so much and have so much trust in fires you, I think other people probably said, well, if, he, if one of his close friends and a guy that, you know, he had a great relationship let him go, why would we bring him back? So their mistake, 
That's the way I feel. Um, but I think Michael had every right to do it. He was the owner. Um, our record was poor at the time, and he moved in another direction. And then when you're 70 years old, and the last two jobs you had were Charlotte and the Knicks, I, I think people would say, this guy, he's way over the hill. I, I understand at that time, you really would not watch or go to an NBA game because it was just too painful for you. How did being unemployed at that time kind of impact you? And I know you, you, you grim, but it was, I, I mean, from what I understand, it really, um, you know, it was bothersome at the time. Well, I, I didn't want to go to an NBA game, bec not because it was painful. I didn't want to bring attention to myself. Okay. I thought me being in an arena, and I was vi invited a lot of places, um, but I thought me being in an arena would maybe be a, a distraction for, you know, s some of the people that were coaching. Because um, if you look at the NBA, I, I don't think any coach, except for maybe a few, is really secure in their job. Um, and I think a lot of coaches aren't really given a, a chance to, you know, stamp, put their stamp on a team. Uh, I should have gotten fired in San Antonio my first year. We, would, we won 21 games, but Red McCombs gave me a chance and stuck with me. And uh, that allowed me to stay there for quite a while. But um, I, I didn't like not working. Well, I, work's a bad, bad word. I, I've never worked. You know, I, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I was hoping I could do when I was a young boy. Um, not on this level, not on the pro level. I thought I was going to be a high school coach. Um, and teach I, history. Yeah, I, I loved American history. I, I used to read Chip Hilton books, um, and they had a coach that coached baseball, basketball, and football, and, and that's, that was my goal. Um, I thought that would be my dream job. Um, I happened to get lucky and go to North Carolina and have Dean Smith and Frank McGuire mentor me and play on the Olympic team with Miss Diver and John McClendon, so they made me want to be a coach. So not working for two years, driving your kids to school and that was fun being around them i loved it smelling them every day was the best but i miss being in the gym i miss teaching i miss being around coaches and players and so it was it was not a fun time for me uh why did you make the decision to start really traveling all around visiting uh coaching friends and you know at, at colleges well um when I was a pro coach, we start the season early and end late if you're good. So most people come watch you play, watch you coach. And I never was afforded that opportunity other than the lockout year in 99. And when the lockout came, I, w I went as many places as I could. I hung out at Princeton most of the time because it was close. But when I, when I was fired, I lived in Philly and Jay Wright, allowed me to come to his practices. Um, I went m too many times, I think. Yeah.
but then John Calipari and Bill Self and Mark Turgeon and Tad Boyle and and I went to Delaware, went around Philly, and I just was fortunate enough that they allowed me to sit in and watch. They all used to thank me for my input, but they were saving my life. I was learning so much. Really? Oh yeah, just, you know, when you have the background I have, and you were lucky enough to be around the coaches that have been a part of my life, both coaches I played for and coaches I coached with, there's a whole wealth of things that they teach you. But when you're out of it and removed and you watch other people do, you know, coach, it reinforces some of your values and it also gives you, you know, a different perspective on how much you could do and how much more you could do and how much better you could, you know, prepare yourself. So I didn't get discouraged uh, because I was having fun. And lo and behold, you know, SMU came open and um, Navy came open and George Mason came open and people tried to push me for those jobs and there wasn't really a heck of a lot of interest. I want to take you back to when you were growing up. Your first six years, I, I think you lived in three different places in addition to uh, a relative's home. Uh, your mom would be at work when you went to school in the morning and I think generally still there when you came home at the end of the day. How much of a struggle w were things when you were growing up? I, I never felt it was a struggle at all. Um, you know, my mom worked 16 hours a day. She worked for my grandfather in his bakery and we lived on top of the bakery and I, I had everything I wanted. There was a playground across the street. I had sneakers and a basketball and I had a baseball bat and a baseball glove and football when whatever season it was, I was thrilled to death to be playing. And my mom had this one rule when she blinked the shades, you know, to close the, the store, I had to come in. Um, you know, I, I never felt I wanted for anything, and my mom had brothers and sisters that, you know, treated me like I was their son. You mentioned uh, your father's passing. Uh, when you were six years old, he ends up having a heart attack and passing away. Um, how do you think that impacted you? I don't, I don't know. Um, I never really thought about it till you know you'd go to a father and son function or something like that. Uh, you know, it was harder on my brother because he was older. Um, my dad was away so much traveling that you know I I got really close to my mom. I I couldn't wait for the weekends to see my dad. But but again, I had so many people that took a personal interest in my life that. Um, they handled that void. Uh, now, as I got get older, I, I look back and there were a lot of things I really miss. I, you know, I would have loved to my, for my dad to see me play and watch me coach. Um, but, you know, so many, uh, so many people really went out of the way to help me grow up. Um, and uh, I think from that standpoint, I was really, really lucky. 
You mentioned your brother. Um, I, I believe he's around five years older uh, th than you. When you were head coach of the Pistons, and he's been a longtime basketball coach, you hired him as your assistant coach. How special was it for you to be able to do that? No, he, my brother can coach. Um, you know, he has a wealth of knowledge. He was successful in his own way. He was an NBA head coach as well at one yeah, point, right? Yeah, and he's coached all over the world. His his path was a lot more difficult than mine. I was, I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. He's had to work for everything that he's gotten. But um, he was always able to be real with me. Um, he's bright as hell. Uh, and I, and I think, you know, when we won a championship, not, I not only shared it with him, you know, I shared it with Mike Woodson, Dave Hanners, Phil Ford, all the people that ever coached with me were part of that. But uh, I think it, my mom had a little twinkle in her eye and my dad probably had a big smile on his face. Your mom lived till 106 years old. Uh, your uh, brother, you, you once said, um, you know, your brother was actually the Pistons head coach de decades ago uh, when you were the Denver Nuggets head coach, and you said the most uncomfortable you've ever been is coaching against your brother. Uh, why is that? Well, in some regards, um, one, I was proud that, you know, I think we're the first brother combination that ever coached against each other in the NBA. But it's like coaching against a Danny Manning or a John Calipari um, or Mo Cheeks or Greg Popovich, people that meant a lot to you in your life. I never enjoy looking down the bench and having to coach against somebody that has been a big part of my life, except for the fact that I'm proud to have an opportunity to do that. So I only want to coach against people in the NBA Finals or the NCAA Championships that have been a part of my life, then I know we both have had s some success. Um, I, I want to mention a few very significant moments from your career and just get what comes to mind. Uh, the, the, the first of which being uh, your Olympic gold medals both a as a player and as an assistant coach. I never expected to make the Olympic team and I ended up you know, our team won the trials, and they let me know the day before they selected that I was going to make the team. Um, and then I looked at the guys that didn't make it. There was an amazing amount of great players that tried out and didn't make it, and I just felt so fortunate. Um, and I remember when they introduced the team, and each player had a little desk with his name on it. None of the press even spoke to me. You know, I was between Bill Bradley and Bad News Barnes, I think, and I just sat there. But, you know, to be one of 12 was an amazing feeling. Yeah. I, was, I was asked to coach a number of Olympic teams. Um, coach Smith asked me to coach when they went to Montreal, but the, uh, an NBA coach wasn't allowed to go. And John Thompson ended up going with Coach Smith. Um, Mr. Iba asked me to help with numerous Olympic trial teams and help. Uh, I was assistant coach in 80 that didn't get to go. 
Um, I coached a bunch of qualifying teams as well. So being part of the Olympic movement and representing your country was um, something that was really a wonderful thing for me. If you had to go back, if you had to go back and relive one season, where, when, and why? Probably my first year as a freshman coach at North Carolina, assistant coach. To Dean Smith? For Dean Smith. I just never thought I'd have that opportunity and to go back to your university and get to coach with somebody that's meant so much to you. That was, that was incredible. That freshman team that I got to coach went to three Final Fours. Unfortunately, that coincided with Kareem's, you know, three years at UCLA. But uh, I, I loved that more than anything. But all through my life, I, you know, people always ask me, what was the greatest thing that's ever happened to you? Uh, so the Kansas College Championship was, or the Pistons uh, NBA Championship aren't as significant to you as the, the mentioned milestones because of kind of... No, I, I mean, I don't take lightly what happened. Let me, you know, I had the best player in college when we won at Kansas, Danny Manning. We really should have won three championships. You know, the 86 team, a lot of unfortunate things happened. We had a bunch of kids foul out. Archie Marshall tore ACL in that game. I think if Archie would have been healthy, we would have won. If Danny would have been allowed to play, I'm sure we would have won. He only played 20 minutes. The following year, if Archie was help, healthy, I'm sure we would have had a chance to do it again. And then in 88, we won. But being around those kids and being the coach of Kansas, um, it was just an incredible experience. The coach, if, if you're a college coach, if you have a chance to coach one game at Allen Fieldhouse and represent that school, you've done it all. I know you have a great relationship with Allen Iverson now. What was the most challenging aspect in your mind of working with AI? Well, every day was a challenge. Um, when you are able or given an opportunity to coach a David Thompson, a David Robinson, a Dan Issel, a Bobby Jones, uh, Allen Iverson, a Reggie Miller, people like that, you got a heck of a responsibility to bring out the best in them. And you don't always do it the right way. And the, the great ones make it even more difficult because you go home every night hoping that you've given them the opportunity to show their talent. And they have different ways of doing it and they accept coaching differently. But Alan, Alan's the greatest athlete I've ever been around, maybe the greatest competitor I've ever seen but I know God put me here to coach him because there wasn't one day that I went into to work that I didn't expect the unexpected with him. <laughs> to, to what extent do you think he made the most of his talent? Oh, I think uh, probably 90%. Uh, he's never been allowed to get the other 10% the last four years. They, nobody's given him a chance to keep playing. And there's no doubt in my mind that he could have helped some team. I, I wanted to bring him back, excuse me, to Charlotte. And uh, Michael said, Larry, I, and Michael admired Allen. 
Mm-hmm. And Alan loved Michael. Michael said, Larry, if, you bring, if we bring him back, you're going to play him ahead of some of these young kids, and it's going to prohibit our progress. And he was right. But I, I'm just sick that, you know, Alan couldn't have gone out the right way where people could, you know, show their appreciation for him. Because everywhere we played, when Alan played, the arenas were full. And even though they were supportive of their home team, they were admiring everything Alan did. Well, and, and you were all about practicing the, the right way. And it's been reported that, uh, you know, he would occasionally leave practice or skip out on a weightlifting session to eat tacos or something like that. I mean, how, how do you oh. handle that, you know, knowing kind of your background? It was, I don't know what he was doing, but he had excuses for missing practice. And he, I don't know how many times this kid fell down the stairs and needed stitches or his daughter had a high <laughs> fever. But, um, but again, the players that played with him loved him. And that's not, that's not always the case everywhere. They all knew he was going to give you his best every single night. Um, I, I've said this before. A lot of people have asked me to write a book, and I would love to write a coaching book on how to teach kids how to play based on what I've been taught. I know the title. You know, every time I, I took a, I coached Allen, I think, 600 games. I took him out twice every game. Once the end of the first quarter so he'd get a long rest. Once the end of the third quarter so he'd get a long rest and be fresh to finish the game. And every time I took him out, he MF'd me or whatever. Am I allowed to say that? Sure, we can. So I, my title would be I've been MF 1,200 times. <laughs> and I wanted to fight the first couple of times. but then I'm sure that would have gone well. <laughs> but then the players would tell me that's just Alan. And right. I realized that after a while. And, and, and here I want everybody to know this. Um, at the time I coached him, it was a challenge, but it made me a better coach and a better person. And not a day goes by that I don't appreciate the opportunity I had just being a part of his life. And so many people have been impacted by him and how he played and what he brought to the game. I want to ask you about one more moment from that relationship when it seemed to be at kind of its toughest uh, part, at least, and this was, um, you know, AI or Allen r- reportedly, uh, you know, says to 76ers management, either fire Larry or trade me. Um, you r- reportedly said to 76ers management, either trade him or I'm quitting. Well, we could have probably had that conversation a hundred times. Um, I'm sure he felt that way numerous times, and I I don't doubt that I didn't feel it numerous times, but when I was alone with Alan, um, there was never a problem. Um, His his difficulty was if I ever said anything in front of the group. Um, He had so much pride in himself that if I ever brought out something that I thought he needed to do better or he didn't do well enough or I thought he took a bad shot, or gamble defensively. If I said it, you know, corrected him in front of the group, it was very difficult for him. But I had Eric Snow, George Lynch, Aaron McKee, Theo, um, Matt Guy, um, Tyrone Hill, Dikembe Mutombo, Larry Hughes. I had all these people around me. 
that I would coach them and they would help Alan. And they had to be a pretty special group, but they loved him, they respected him. They would get exasperated by some of the things he, he did, but they knew come game time, he was gonna do everything he can to give us a chance to win. So that got me through so many days. Um, and I think when I look back on teams that people bring up to me that were special, the 2001 team, I think people in Philly thought we won the NBA championship because of the love they had for that team. And obviously, Allen was the first and foremost player on that team. The New York Knicks, um, you know, it lasted one season uh, before you were let go. Uh, obviously, the season didn't turn out well with, the, I think, it being the team's worst record in 20 years. What happened there? We were a bad team. Look at the roster. I mean, it was a bad team. Um, and when you're a coach, you are what your record is. And I did all the wrong things. Um, I didn't establish a relationship with the owner, James Dolan. Um, he wanted to win in the worst way. He really gave, tried to give me every opportunity, every resource to be good. Um, I went through Isaiah Thomas, um, and I think that the messages that James Dolan was getting back about me were not entirely true. Mm. Um, I inherited some guys on my staff other than Herb Williams that, you know, I thought made it difficult for me. Herb was great. I, I never ever, you know, would build a staff with people other than guys that love me that cared for me, that respected me. Um, How did that impact your relationship with Isaiah? Um, I thought I had a great one with him. I admired him. I, I was one of the coaches in 1980 when he made the Olympic team. I don't think there was a more, you know, a better player um, than him. I th he was special. I admired the way he played. But, you know, working for him, he had a whole different personality than the one that I had learned to respect and admire. Um, and it was very uncomfortable for me. You can't be a coach and have the GM involved with your players, involved with your coaches. You gotta be, there's gotta be a fit where there's one voice and everybody's on the same page. Isaiah had an entirely different agenda. And you can't work in those situations. And I. I think he's bright, and I think he felt he was doing the right thing, but he made it impossible for me. And that's no excuse. I mean, he didn't coach the team. You know, I was the coach. But I'm convinced if they would have kept me, we'd have won. You know, the, things don't happen overnight. Right. You know, and I know I can coach, and I know I would have made that team better. The, the owner uh, was quoted after the fact as saying, uh, you know, something like you wanted to waive all the players from the roster, including uh, Stefan Marbury, which, you know, he said would have cost him, I think, like 150 million bucks. Was there any truth to that with, you know, wanting to waive the I didn't, you know, I didn't say waive. I wanted to make changes yeah. that needed to be done and look at what they did. Right. Who are, those, who are the guys left? 
they got rid of those guys down the road. Um, I didn't bring them all there, you know, so I just know if they would have listened to me and trusted me, we'd have been great pretty quickly. I'm, I'm completely confident of that. But again, James Dolan was a great owner. Um, I just did a bad job of letting him know what I was about and how I felt a team should be built. The other thing that I was surprised by in kind of the research, you know, you get a volume of profile stories from all throughout the uh, years about you. Why are you smiling about Oh, well, it was, I guess it's the amount of like print copy that's been devoted to your coaching changes over the years and either, you know, criticism or people poking fun at it. And I mean, it just seems like you know, whether you stay at one place for a year or three years or 10 years, if you want to switch roles every few years, you need to do what makes you happy and that's your right and you've earned the ability to do so. So I guess I'm just curious in your mind why you think you've received criticism for that over the years? I don't know. You know, I, I look around. Um, I never had the intention of leaving. A lot of people tell me people were angry I left because maybe they thought I was doing a good job and I was a good fit. Right. I really believe in my heart that's a big thing. But like I told you before, I, I really felt I had reasons to leave. I'll give you an example. I, I loved UCLA. Um, J.D. Morgan died when I was there. He was the AD. Um, my relationship with UCLA was strong, but he was the one that I, I wanted to work for. Um, I, and people don't look at that like that. And, and then they look at, you know, UCLA went on probation when I left. Well, they had 88 violations um, prior to me going there. I, they had two when I was there. One, one of my assistants gave out an illegal sh a shirt and one was an illegal meal. And they look at me as a guy that left and put them on probation. I had nothing to do with that. And then they don't want to talk about um, eight years later, they asked me to come back and coach. If I was such a bad guy, or they didn't care about me or didn't think I did a good job, why would they ask me to come back? But the bottom line is I had no intention of leaving anywhere. Yeah. And like I said before, I gave every job I had the most I could give. And I'm not, I'm proud of everything I do, I've done, every practice I went to, every game I coached. Um, and I don't think I shortchanged anybody, but when you have a track record like me, um, people have a right to have their opinion about who you are and what you're about. I wish they would get to know me a little bit before they would you know, come to these conclusions but that's just the way it is. What would the Larry Brown now tell the Larry Brown at 40 years old? At 40, uh, I'd tell him to try to do the best you can every day in what you do, be a decent human being and try to make kids better if you're gonna be a coach and develop the people you sit next to and give them an opportunity to do what you're doing. I want people to know don't stop working if you're doing something you love, and do everything you can to help young people grow up and be successful. Because 
that's what happened to me. Every coach that I've had did everything they could to make me better. And uh, I feel real fortunate about that. Really a pleasure, Coach. Thank, thank you Thanks so much. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.